0: Good morning, family. How are y'all? Good. If it's your first time here, we are so glad that you've joined us here today as well. My name is Nathan. I am one of the teachers here at the church, and uh, it's just a good time to be together around God's Word on this beautiful summer morning. Uh, As Austin just read, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, so I would invite you to go ahead and open that. Uh, we're going to just kind of be looking at today uh, 11, those 11 verses that that he read, and um, <clears throat> this is week eight of a series uh, that we've titled Gospel Joy and Gospel Power, and uh, of course you see that there on the screen. Now, why do we call it that? Why are we saying Gospel Joy and Gospel Power? Well, we're in a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi uh, called, cleverly, Philippians, um, and so That's where we're at, and basically what's going on is Paul planted this church in about AD 50, and here we are now about 11 to 12 years later, and he's writing a letter back while he's in prison, and we've talked about over the last seven weeks the reality of just like what happened in Philippi back in AD 50 when he planted the church, and you can find the story of that in Acts chapter 16, but what you see is the gospel moves in Power And it moves in power in such a way that the first person that comes to faith in Jesus is Lydia, who is a religious person. She's going down to the river to pray, and she engages with Paul and his crew there at the river, and she professes faith in Jesus. She's religious, but she needed Jesus. And the gospel was powerful enough to invade her life and change her life. But the next person we see radically changed is not a religious person, most likely a very irreligious person, a very secular pagan person, a Roman jailer. And he is saved after the earthquake hits the jail. They do not leave. Paul shares the gospel with him. Him and his whole household is saved. And so we say gospel power because it's able to move into Philippi and it's able to save both the religious and what we would, maybe a term we would use today, the secular That's what it was able to do. And so we find ourselves now in in chapter 3 of this passage of this letter, and Paul is basically going to talk today about baseline Christianity. Baseline Christianity, like the essence of our faith. And why do you think, here we are now two chapters into the letter, that Paul is inserting this in the middle of the letter? I mean, he's already called them to live lives worthy of the gospel, He's already, as we said, the first week, he's kind of made some gospel claims about the fact that they're now saints, that they have this new identity in Jesus, and he's calling them to live lives worthy of the gospel. He's calling them to live for Christ. He's trying to encourage them that God is going to complete the work that he began in them. And yet here he is now two chapters in going kind of circling back around to give more of a clear, clear presentation of the gospel. Why do you think that is? I've, been, I've mentioned here the last couple of weeks that we don't naturally drift into holding fast to the gospel. Just as, human, as humans, even people that are redeemed by God, we naturally drift away from remembering the gospel, holding fast to the gospel, using that as our foundation. We need constant reminders of the joy, the power, and the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to constantly be reminded of that. We don't graduate from the gospel. To deeper truths that are really impactful. The gospel is the foundation and is the way we grow. So what does Paul say the essence of the gospel is in Philippians 3? Well, I think part of what he's the part of the way he says it is actually in verse 9. And he basically just says it's to be found in Jesus. Like the result of the gospel is that we are found in Jesus. And yet knowing the essence of the gospel knowing the result of it and living a life in the reality of it that you are found in Christ that you are fully accepted and loved by God through grace by faith it's just a hard reality to swallow for us sometimes we have a natural a natural tendency to feel like we got to earn something as humans it's just natural for us we see our own failures And worse yet, we don't just see our sin, we know our own hearts. We know the parts of our heart that people sitting next to us today don't know. But we do. We know our hearts, we know our sin. And when we think about our lives and we think about where we are, we so naturally end up slipping into self-justification. There's this pull in the human heart to feel like we need to justify ourselves. We need to justify our existence. From the moment sin entered the cosmos in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, self-justification and blame shifting has been the MO of humanity. It's the way we go. You see it in the garden. They're naked and they realize it and they, what do they do? They try to self-justify and the way they do it is they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. They try to make themselves more presentable. They blame shift Adam says, it was the woman you gave me, Lord. You did it, basically. You made her. And she's like, it was the serpent that you made that deceived me. We have blame shifted. We self-justify. And that's just kind of the way we roll. And yet to be found in Jesus, to live a life in Jesus, actually sets us free from self-justification and seeking constantly to establish our own credibility with God and with others. And don't you want a life like that? Don't you want a life that's free of self-justification, free of trying to earn a credibility with God? And I think if you do, and I believe you do because you're here today, this passage from Paul on just kind of baseline Christianity is going to help us see a few things to help us get there. We're going to see three marks of our life in Jesus. Three marks of our life in Jesus. We're also gonna see how life in Jesus is actually different than any other way of life our culture or our world has to offer. Three marks of Jesus, how life in Jesus is different from any other way of life. We're gonna see how we live this life in Jesus. How do we actually have life in Jesus? How do we obtain it? And then lastly, we're gonna see the safety of remembrance. So three marks of the life in Jesus, how life is different than any other way of life, how we actually obtain that life in Jesus and the safety of remembrance. So first, like, what are the three markers of life in Jesus? Well, you see all three of them in verse three there. So let's just read it together. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So there's, this is actually an identity statement followed by three marks of that identity. Life in Jesus means being part of the people of God. That's what circumcision represented in the Old Testament. Circumcision was what marked the people of God, specifically the males, in the Old Testament as God actually instituted as a sign to Abraham of the covenant. So circumcision in and of itself in the Old Testament is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It marks you out as part of the people of God. But when you transition to the new covenant in the New Testament, Paul specifically in in his letters refers more to what circumcision pointed to because the mark itself wasn't the point. Even in the Old Testament, it was never the point. It's not the people of God marked by an outward sign in the New Testament on the body, but an inward change of heart. And this even stems from the Old Testament where Ezekiel, in the prophet Ezekiel, it says, I will give you, I will take away your heart of stone, this is God saying, and I will give you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh. Really, the, the result of circumcision, the, the sign that it was always supposed to point to was the fact that we needed actually a new heart. We needed a heart of flesh. We needed to cut away from the heart of stone. God's people in the new covenant in Jesus are marked by a heart of flesh, the circumcision of our heart. So we have a new identity, the circumcision. It's who we are. We're the people of God. And so what does life look like? What does life look like for the people of God and the new covenant in Jesus Christ? Well, that's what he tells us. And the first mark we see is that it's marked by serving God by his spirit. You see that right there in verse three. What does it look like? It looks like serving God by his spirit. And this is dramatically different from the way ethnic Israel actually served God. There were parts and times in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God would come on a prophet, on a judge, maybe on a king, and would give wisdom. But that wasn't the norm. It wasn't the norm. The Spirit of God occasionally would do it. But now, here we have the prophet Joel speaking in the Old Testament about what would happen when Jesus came. Here's what Joel says. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 He says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit, this is God speaking, on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is how we're able to worship God, in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says to the woman at the well that there will come a day, and now is the day, because I am the Messiah, that you will not have to worship on this mountain or that mountain. It won't matter what ethnicity you are. You worship God in spirit and in truth. And those are the worshipers the Father seeks. And Paul says, we can do that because we're the circumcision and we worship and serve God by the spirit of God. And by the Spirit of God, not only are we able to worship in spirit and truth, that we're actually able and empowered to follow Jesus and be transformed into his image by the power of the Spirit. And notice where circumcision was only marking out males within Israel, within the people of God, the Spirit that comes will be poured out on both men and women, sons and daughters. This was not a Jewish ethnic mark. This mark was for all people of all races who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how powerful this statement would have been to the Philippian church that is predominantly made up of Gentiles? That you, you, Philippian church, are the circumcision. We actually are the people of God. It's a powerful, powerful statement. Life in Jesus is empowered the Spirit of God. But the second mark of life in Jesus we see is that it's, by, it's boasting in Jesus. It's boasting in Jesus. The weight of our life, the weight of our life, the pride of our existence is not ourselves, it's Jesus. We cling to Jesus for validation, and we're going to get more into that in a minute. But the last mark we see of the three marks is that life in Jesus is marked by putting zero confidence in the flesh. Really, boasting in Jesus and putting zero confidence in the flesh are like two sides of the same coin. And what does that mean to put no confidence in the flesh? It's a great question. I'm glad you guys asked that because that's where we're headed. How is life in Jesus different than any other way of life? Because the human experience defaults to putting confidence in the flesh. The human experience defaults putting confidence in the flesh. And this is what prompts Paul's warning in, chat in verse two. Notice what he says in verse two. Watch out for those dogs, those evil. Now, this is not talking about who you guys have back at home, hopefully not tearing up your house. Those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Paul is warning them to watch out for a group of people spreading falsehoods now we don't know particularly who this group of people were if you just read like you can make some inference reading other scriptures but if you're just reading philippians we don't know precisely who they were but we can deduce the essence of their message they were encouraging those following jesus that while believing in him was good like you need to believe in jesus like i think it's pretty clear that they were that they would say that jesus is the messiah But they would also say to be fully part of God's people, you most likely need to assimilate into the Jewish race with ethnic markers that the Jews had of circumcision. That's where we get mutilators of the flesh. Most likely, they were calling the Philippian church, you need to, yes, believe in Jesus, but on top of that, to add to that, you also need to look and act like Jesus a Jew. Most likely, based on other letters where these things were going on, like Galatians. And if you look at the way Paul engages with Peter, who falls into this in in Acts, where Peter kind of begins to disassociate with Gentiles, and he wouldn't eat certain things around Jews. Most likely, it's not just circumcision. They're saying, you need to have the diet, you need to follow our dietary laws, no pork for you. You need to have certain ceremonies that you follow. And, And Paul rebukes Peter. For that because that's not the essence of being the circumcision in the New Testament. One of the aspects that makes life in Jesus unique is that it includes people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, people of different skin colors, different backgrounds, different social standings and cultural beliefs are transformed into one people of God in Jesus, but they retain much of those things that make them different. We here are Christians in America, but we have brothers and sisters in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in Europe, in Australia. And they may, some of them may look like us. Some of them may talk like us, but the reality is we all have different languages We all have different looks, and we retain those things. We don't squash that down. We retain the complexity of God's people, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And no other religion can really say this. I don't have a stat to show you, but I've seen a chart recently to show that when you look geographically at our world, other religions typically are isolated, for the most part, to certain areas of our world. But Christianity spreads all across the globe, No other faith system has the diversity culturally, skin color, or language like Christianity. And these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh were flattening out the beauty of God's redeemed people being made up of multiple ethnicities, tribes, and languages. And they're trying to make them all look the same. They're squashing it down to say you should all be primarily Jewish. This is how N.T. Wright comments on this passage. He says this, they were falling into the trap the ancient Israelites had dug for themselves when they said they wanted to be like all the nations. A pause for a second. If you remember in the Old Testament, God says, I'm gonna be your king. And Israel says, "Mm, that's not very cool. We actually wanna be like all these pagan nations around us. We want a human king. And this is what N.T. Wright's referring to. He says, they wanted to be like all the nations. But he says, the point of Israel was that it should be distinctive, different, a light to the nations. And so for them to empathize or emphasize ethnicity meant that they were actually being just like the other nations. They were being the same. So Paul takes them to task and he confronts these evildoers' messages of confidence in their Jewish pedigree and he confronts them with a pedigree of his own. Look what he says, starting in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which is when it should have happened, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This type of resume would make most any opponent of Paul blush. Because in the context of Judaism, Paul was varsity. Like he was QB1. He was ace on the pitching staff. If you're not a sports fan, I lost all of you. He was hot stuff. Well, we don't really say that anymore. Um, He was legit. We don't say that either, MC Hammer. Uh, He was cool. I don't even know if that's cool anymore. He was cool. Like his resume would punk out anybody else's resume. And he's flexing that. But what does he say about his own resume? Like if he says, you're gonna put confidence in the flesh, you dogs, well, think about what I've got. Think about what I bring to the table. And then what does he say about what he brings to the table? Here's what he says if you jump down to verse nine. What does he say about his righteousness based on the law? Here's what he says. He says, I need to be found in Jesus... And then here's what he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This brothers and sisters is how Christianity and life in Jesus sets itself apart from every other way of life imaginable. All all the ways of life in this world are ways of trying to find righteousness. All other ways of life in this world are ways of trying to find and accrue righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is a justification of your existence. In this context... When I say that we're trying to find righteousness, what I mean by that is that humanity is trying to justify its existence. You are trying to justify your value and your worth by accruing your own righteousness. The human heart is on a self-justification pursuit from the moment you're born. And regardless of what you say you believe about God, or whether you believe in God at all, regardless of what you believe about his character or what you say you believe about his character, we naturally feel in and in our bones, we feel the need to justify our existence in this world. And this sets humanity apart. We talk about dogs. My dog, Maya, is not sitting around the house wondering why she exists. She's just not troubled by that. She isn't sitting in her kennel wondering if she really deserves to be in our family. This is a human problem. Why is that? Because we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. And Genesis 1 says that we are made in his image. And one of the aspects of being made in in the image of God, as Ecclesiastes points out, is that we have eternity in our hearts. Human beings inherently know that life should have meaning and purpose. Like we should have a reason to exist. And our fundamental purpose is to reflect as image bearers, to reflect the goodness and glory of God as his image bearers into the world that he made. But we've rejected that vocation. And instead, we desire to live as our own God's in the midst of a world that we didn't create. And the reality is, whether we want to admit it or not, this troubles our soul. It troubles our soul, because we know it's not right. And Romans 1, though, here's what Romans 1 says, it says that oftentimes when that conviction comes up and we feel that deep inside, like this is just not right, something's off, not just with the world, but there's something off inside of me, Romans 1 says that we suppress that. We don't like that feeling. And instead of engaging with it to figure it out, we suppress it. We're just like, I just can't deal with that. We binge Netflix. We binge substances. We run away from the fact that we have a nagging feeling that our existence is out of whack with what we were created for because we just can't figure out why. And we look at the brokenness in our world And there's this ache in our bones to understand why we see the decay of society and relationships. Why we see natural disaster after natural disaster wreaking havoc in our world. Why we see war after war, abuse after abuse. And we know it isn't right, but we can't quite figure out why and what to do about it all. So we just resort to looking in the mirror to try to make the most of our lives. We build a resume of approval for the world to then look at us and approve us. We define our identity ourselves. We want to define our identity and then we want to define our life. And then we need the validation from everyone else around us that the way we define our life is great. It's awesome. You're worthy. It's righteousness. It's what we're after. We're after Righteousness. All the way of building out our own righteousness so that our existence can be justified. This is the way of the world. This is the way of other religions that perceive there is a God, maybe a higher power. And so, what they do is they, they try to accrue righteousness to appease this God, to make this God or this divine power pleased. It's also the way the secular world works. The secular world, secularism, irreligion, however you want to say it, they build out systems of righteousness to show one another that they're worthy of their existence. And they may do this by just showing how tolerant they are, at least with people that agree with them. They may do this to show how kind they are. Like, I just want to be a good person. Maybe they build out a system of just being beautiful. Like, I feel like I'm worthy if I look good, if I'm pretty. If I'm tone, if I'm buff, we build out righteousness by trying to be successful. Like, look at what all I've done. Look at what all I've built, being open-minded. There's all kinds of ways that our culture, secular culture, says this is what it means to be worthy of existence. This is your righteousness. But if you look at the world in which we live, we can tell these systems are broken. Because we haven't been able to achieve the freedom that we thought we would feel when we established our own righteousness. Because we don't actually feel justified. Deep down still, we feel that ache that something's off. The output that we feel isn't what the input should have produced and we don't know why. But Paul shows us why. Because even if you're a total stud within our worldly view of justification, how you're trying to justify yourself, if you're a stud in that way, it still pales in comparison to the righteousness that you can have by faith. Because what you need, what I need, is a righteousness that I can't achieve but can only receive as a gift. And this is the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, this way of life is different from all other ways of life this world has to offer, both secular and false religion, because it's the only remedy for your broken relationship between the creator whose image you are made in and the Lord of heaven and earth and yourself. It's the relationship this way between man and God must be made right for all other relationships in life to find reconciliation And for you to be justified and this remedy to that relationship is not you achieving a righteousness that god is going to be impressed with instead it is to receive from god the righteousness of jesus christ in exchange for your life by the mercy and love of god this way of life is completely different from any other way of life so how do we engage with god in this way like how do we enter that kind of life paul says you got to be found in him First, he says it in chapter three, verse nine, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And faith is more than belief. Faith is more than belief. It's trust. I've heard this story a few times. Um, I think maybe even Dan has shared it before, but I know most recently I heard it from a pastor in New York named John Tyson. But I, and so I wanna reshare it because I feel like it's really relevant to what I'm trying to say. And on June 30th, 1859, uh, a French acrobat named Jean-Francois Gravelet, yeah, I had creme brulee last night, so I was able to say that, I think, properly. I actually didn't have creme brulee. Uh, so, June 30th, 1859, this French acrobat puts a tightrope 1,100 feet long over the Niagara Falls, 160 feet above Niagara Falls. And he walks across it. And there are people watching and cheering. Like, it's, it's an amazing thing. And he repeats the feat all, in all these different ways. He, he actually carries somebody piggyback, which is crazy. But, you know, it's still him, really. It's just adding a little bit of weight on the wire. Uh, what I read was that at one point, he even, I don't know how he did it. Because, you know, video wasn't around back then. You couldn't stream this on Netflix if you wanted to. He carries an oven out and cooks an omelet on the tightrope. I don't know how. It's incredible. So you've got this group of people. They're watching this. They're cheering. They're like, yeah, this is awesome. This guy, you, you know, you're amazing that you can do this. And so then he does something really crazy. He takes a wheelbarrow, you know, which only has one wheel. So now he's got his two feet and a wheelbarrow, and he goes across the tightrope with the wheelbarrow, and the crowd is going nuts. We are amazed. And he looks at the crowd, basically, this is the way the story goes, and he says, do you believe, do you believe I can do it? Do you believe I can do it? Yeah, we believe you can do it. We believe you can do it. Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Wasn't quite as crazy loud there. Not many people, not many takers to actually jump in the wheelbarrow. Jesus is not a French acrobat, but he walked the tightrope of life without falling off into sin. And he's the only one who can be your substitute. But you have to do more than cheer him from the sideline. We believe you did it, Jesus. You wanna get on my back and come with me? Oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know about that. Righteousness from God on the basis of faith is more than just belief. It's trust, it's getting in the wheelbarrow and saying, I trust you, I trust you with my life. So how do you decide to do that? How do you get to the point where you can actually decide to trust Jesus? Believe it or not, despite what you may have heard about blind faith, you actually use rationale. Look what Paul says in verse seven. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. What rationale does Paul use to determine that he's put his trust in Jesus the very rationale you all were hoping we would talk about this morning, accounting. We get to talk about accounting. Paul examines his pedigree and the shape of his life, which within his culture was pretty stellar. I mean, if you think about it, he was trained, we find out elsewhere when he talks about his life, I think it's in Galatians, he was trained under Gamaliel, who was a leading rabbi teacher of the day in Judaism. He was a Roman citizen. So, he also has all the privileges that being a Roman citizen brought, yet he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. So, he's kind of the best of both worlds. He's part of God's Old Testament covenant people, yet also a Roman. And when he looks at this pedigree and the shape of his life, he takes his identity and how he was born, which he had no control over, but also what he had made of himself, and he juxtaposes it next to the claims of Jesus. And then he says, I considered it. He does some considering, he does some counting. And Paul sees all his accomplishments and his, and his ethnic heritage, and he says, you know what, that's all garbage. They're being polite. The actual word here means excrement. He says, i look at this, and it's doo-doo. It's what he says. He weighed out his life and his accomplishments And he looks at the claims of Jesus and he says that he considers all this a loss just to gain Jesus. He chooses gospel gains. And when you choose gospel gains, your credit never outweighs the credit of Jesus. He's always worth it. It's never gonna be a bad trade. And this is how he can say, for me to live as Christ And to die is gain, because when you're found in Christ, he's your life. All else, even good things, are a loss for the sake of Jesus, and they're worth it every time. The good things in your life come from God. But when you build your identity around them, or when you look at your kids and how good they are, and you go, here's my righteousness, Lord, it pales in comparison to the righteousness that you can be given for free by grace and by faith. But what is more, I just want you to see this is our boast. This is our boast. And Saul, in verse 3, where he says, we boast in Christ Jesus, this is what he means. Life in Christ is marked by a life where we actually realize the bankruptcy of boasting to God about ourselves and our accomplishments in the flesh. And instead, we boast in Jesus and him alone. But I want you to see this is more than just some cold accounting calculation to save his hind end or mine. This is to find Christ, to be found in Christ, is to be found in Christ in a personal way. Look at how he finishes out in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You see, to be found in Jesus is to know Jesus, to know him, not know about him, to know him, to trust him is to know him and to trust. And and Paul equates knowing Jesus with experiencing Jesus and all that Jesus experienced. Experiences sufferings, experiences death. Just like Jesus was obedient to the point of death, as we said in Philippians 2, Paul understands that knowing Jesus for himself means death, death to self. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me death to the ways of the world both false religion and secularism death to sin Romans says that we if you're in Christ you are dead to sin and alive to God how because death isn't the end it's the beginning we die so that we can be made alive in Jesus and this is what it means to be found in him to know him his death and the power of the resurrection so that now we can live life in Jesus and in his presence forever and ever and ever. And we do this, Paul says in verse three, by the power of the spirit. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Would you consider that? Have you done that? What are you boasting in? What are you boasting in to God? Because he offers the righteousness required by faith. That's it. And because boasting in Jesus as our only hope of true life now and forever is what I believe is at the heart of what Paul says in verse one. As we finish up, he says this. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. You see, when you realize that Christianity is really just built around not earning a righteousness that you can't, but receiving the grace of God and being found in Jesus, you can actually have an identity only by grace. When you realize that, faith then can create joy in your heart. It loosens the yoke of the slavery of achievement that you could never achieve in this life anyway. And the yoke of that slavery is removed. And for those of us who are already found in Christ, to continually rejoice in the Lord as Paul commands here in verse 1, to continually do that actually causes us to remember all that he's done. As we rejoice in the Lord, we're remembering the grace that he's shown us, the mercy that he provides us, the way that our wanting to be our own God, our trying to accrue our own righteousness was so bankrupt. And when we see the good news of the gospel and we come to him, it stirs joy. And as we rejoice in the Lord continually, we are constantly reminded of the gospel. Paul is teaching the Philippians and us that this remembrance of our boast in Jesus is the way we are safeguarded against the false doctrines of our day that would get us to believe that we can find life in some other way that would bring fulfillment. Or worse, to think that we need to add to Jesus. To think, yeah, God saved me in Jesus, but I've got to add all this stuff for him to accept me. You've left Christianity at that point and you're building a righteousness of your own. And that's so tempting to the human heart. And Paul says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. That is the safeguard for us. We rejoice in the Lord because He's given us the identity we all need to be one people of different races, different languages, different cultures that call God our Father. And we are found in Christ Jesus, serving by the Spirit of God and boasting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Praise His name. This is baseline Christianity, and it's powerful enough to save the religious And the secular, it's the only way to live. So today, as we close and the call to action, if you're here today and you're clearly at least somewhat intrigued by Jesus, if you're here or you're watching online, there's something that's drawn you in. And many of you may consider yourself a follower of of Jesus at this point. But others here, maybe you're just, like we said, maybe you're just counting. Maybe you're just considering Him today. Wherever you are in the room with your walk with God, let me encourage you, first of all, to just think, are you trusting Jesus? Or are you just believing He's capable to do it? Are you standing there watching Him going like, I believe that you are good enough to save me? Or are you actually trusting Him? Are you getting in the wheelbarrow, so to speak, with Jesus? The second thing I want you to consider is are you exhausted? I am, oftentimes. Are you exhausted? it's possible that you're attempting to serve Him apart from the empowerment of the Spirit. Now, what I mean by that is not that if you're a Christian that you don't have the Spirit, because you do. Scriptures promise us that we are sealed at the moment of belief by the Spirit of God. But you also see throughout the Scriptures where Christians are more filled, seem to be more filled with the Spirit at certain times. I think a lot of us try to do so much for the Lord out of our own flesh. A lot of times for me, like I'm pursuing the spirit when I've already hit the end. <laughs> when I'm dried up, used up, tired, then I'm like, Lord, help me, give me, this, give me the power to move forward. What would it be like for a Christian in the room to, to begin your day every day saying, Spirit, would you fill me today? Would you empower me to serve God by you today? And it doesn't mean if you do that, that everything will be easy. But what it does mean is that you're going to be serving not out of the flesh, but out of the Spirit of God who has given to us to empower us to live lives worthy of the gospel. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then I would say you probably, if you're not exhausted yet, you will be, because a life lived of self-justification is exhausting, because you never feel like it's enough trust Jesus. I'm going to let the Spirit, if you would engage with the Holy Spirit of God right now, let the Spirit speak to your heart. What are you boasting in to, to God? What are you trusting in? Are you empowered by the Spirit? Think through those things. Let the Spirit of God speak to you now and then I'll pray and we'll sing. Father, we are just so grateful for your grace. I know all across this room today, there are people, Father, that are your children. And some of them may have been like me and come to faith in you at seven years old or young and don't remember really a life chasing righteousness of our own, at least not before you. But I know that there are others in here today that is very clear to them. It wasn't that long ago that they were trying to validate and justify their existence in this world to you. So I pray that you would allow those of us that were saved as as young and to see that even then, we still resort to that often. Would you cause us, Lord, to see that in our own hearts and to repent of that, to turn away from that To step into the rest and the freedom and for those who who more recently have come to you God would you remind us just how much of a dead end it was for most of our life before Mm -hmm. would you show us Lord just your infinite mercy that you don't just welcome welcome us in at the beginning by grace, but you sustain us by grace, that the righteousness that we come to you with is not our own, therefore we can never lose it. Would you encourage us, and Father, today, if there are people here or online that don't know you, would you right now just reveal your love and your grace to them in such a powerful way? Would you show them, Holy Spirit, how... They're pining away for something that they could never achieve. Would you give them rest in Jesus' name and let us worship you in spirit and truth just now. In his name we pray, amen.